And as I said earlier, it's great to be back. If I lived a little closer, you'd probably see a lot more of me out there in the, what we used to call the pews. <laughs> I come from the state of Missouri originally, and I was originally a Southern Baptist, so the word pews comes pretty quickly to my mind after many, many years. As you know, uh, 2009 marks the 200th anniversary year of Charles Bar Darwin's birth. So I want to talk this morning about the significance of Darwin, <clears throat> excuse me, of Darwin for religious and philosophical thinking. In his autobiography, which at his request and out of respect for his wife's Christian faith was not published until after his death, Darwin wrote of his gradual conversion from Christianity to atheism or agnosticism. As a young man, he had thought seriously about becoming an Anglican clergyman. In fact, he went to Cambridge to study for that very purpose. And he writes that he went, when he went aboard the Beagle in 1831, he thought of himself as a Christian. However, he notes that over the years, and I'm quoting, disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate and was at last complete. He could not accept the idea of the eternal punishment of non-Christians, nor the idea of the immortality of the soul, and he believes that the degree of, believed that the degree of evil and suffering in the world throws doubt on the idea of an omnipotent and loving deity. Some of the same reasons why I, and I suspect many of you, uh, have rejected that idea. Since he can no longer find any reasons to believe in a divine creator, he now refers to himself as agnostic on the question of God. There can be no doubt that Darwin's discovery of evolution by natural selection has important implications for religious belief. At the most obvious level, it undermines a literal interpretation of the Genesis account of creation by eliminating the need for a supernatural being who creates plants and animals and human beings in finished form. At the next level, it throws doubt on the idea that God had a purpose in everything he created. The theory of natural selection maintains that the only purposes of organisms are to survive and to reproduce. And finally, it questions whether a supernatural creator is necessary at all. Despite the claims of creationists and those advocating intelligent design, the evidence for evolution, as I'm sure you are aware, is overwhelming. I believe that evolution by natural selection is one of the two or three most important discoveries, not only in the history of science, but in the history of the world, because it has changed our understanding of how we came to be, of who and what we are, and our understanding of our place in the world. However, just as it took several hundred years for the full implications of Copernicus' discovery that the uh, Earth is not the center of the universe, to be felt, so also the implications of Darwin's discovery have not yet been fully, uh, become fully apparent. And so this morning, I want to discuss some of those implications, first with respect to our human self-understanding. Before Darwin, species were seen as fixed entities, the creations of a deity who made them in the exact form in which we find them today. After Darwin, however, we understand that all living things have evolved over hundreds of millions of years from single cell organisms that emerged in a, in a kind of primal soup and learned to replicate themselves. After Darwin, we know that we humans are connected together and are part of a great family tree that stretches back across billions of years to the dawn of life. 
And most importantly, Darwinian evolution changed our self-understanding. It showed that human beings are as much a part of nature as beetles and beavers with a family tree that includes countless diverse ancestors. Darwin destroyed the idea that human beings were a special creation made in the image of a supernatural deity. We may be unique with consciousness, with our ability to reason, but it is because this uniqueness evolved, not because it was bestowed on us by a divine being. That awareness represents a sea change in our self-understanding because before Darwin, we humans thought of ourselves as a little less than God, as the psalmist put it, or as another translation has it, a little lower than the angels and infused with an immortal soul. If we are, as evolution suggests, completely natural beings, rather than part natural and part supernatural, then the whole Christian edifice of immortality and divine creation and human beings made in the image of God crumbles. Evolution by natural selection, however, tells us that we consist of the same physical, chemical, and biological elements and structures of other as structures of and structures as other living things do. We have what they have, they have what we have. As Darwin wrote in The Origin of Species, the structure of every organic being is related in the most essential yet often hidden manner so that that of all organic beings, all living things, have much in common. They have much in common in their chemical composition, their germinal vesicles, their cellular structure, and their laws of growth and reproduction. Um, in, end of quotation. The idea held by many in the Western world since Plato, that we human beings consist of an eternal soul temporarily residing in a physical body is now highly problematic. Neuroscience has shown that what we think of as a soul, our intelligence and our emotions and our rational abilities, consists of the multitudinous activities of the trillions of neurons and synapses in our brains. One of the offspring, excuse me, one of the offspring of Darwinian evolution is cosmic evolution, which tells us that we are transformed stardust, evolved to the place where it can now think about itself and tell its own story. If then, as Darwinian evolution teaches us, we are animals, albeit the largest, most complex and highly developed brain, then our reasoning is less reliable, our behavior is less free than we thought, and our loving and our forgiving are not, as, are not free of self-interest. We are not, in other words, as special as we once thought and as we would like to think, I suspect. We are simply the most highly evolved symbol-using animal that natural selection has produced. That people resist a theory that speaks of our animal nature is not surprising since it struck a harsh blow to humankind's exalted view of itself. Darwin himself noted that only our natural prejudice, and I'm quoting again, only our natural prejudice and that arrogance which made our forefathers declare that they were descended from demigods leads us to object to the idea that we are descended from other primates. He goes on, but the time will come long before when people come before long, excuse me, when people will wonder how naturalists who were familiar with the comparative structure of man and other, an, other mammals, mammals should have believed that each was the work of a separate act of creation. End of the quote from Darwin. Thus, evolution by natural selection 
has resulted in what I call a radical naturalization both in our self-understanding and in our understanding of the world. It has taken our focus from the heavens to the earth, so to speak, and because we now seek to understand ourselves in our relationship to our evolutionary biological origins rather than in relation to a divine origin. That's what I mean by the naturalization of our self-understanding. We are part of nature, not something part nature and part supernatural. That does not mean, however, that we are not individuals of great worth and dignity. Um, this is where we need to be clear to those who do not believe in evolution. It, because we have evolved with the capacities we have of love, and self-consciousness, and intelligence, and creativity, and courage, and empathy, however flawed or imperfect these may be, these qualities are reason enough to agree with the great 19th century Unitarian minister William Ellery Channing, often called the father of uh, American Unitarianism, when he wrote, I do and must reverence human nature. I shut my eyes on none of its weaknesses or crimes. I understand the proofs by which the disposition demonstrates that man is a wild beast, but injured, trampled on, and scorned as our nature is, I still turn to it with immense sympathy and strong hope. I agree with Channing that, uh, although he was writing before Darwin, of course, uh, I agree with Channing that uh, we are still people of dignity and worth and value with capacities and abilities that no other uh, animal that we are aware of, at least, has. So our dignity and worth are not compromised by Darwinian thinking. They're just changed in the way in which they came about. Second, Darwin's discovery of evolution by natural selection has important implications for belief about deity, about God. Before Darwin, belief in an omnipotent divine being seemed self-evident in the Western world. Not so anymore. And it is no wonder that religious conservatives are so strongly opposed to the teaching of evolution. They understand its implications. They know that it undercuts their most fundamental beliefs about God and human beings. Does this mean that we can no longer believe in God? Not necessarily, but it does mean that our conception of deity must change radically. It means that it is now more difficult to think of God as a personal supernatural being who is both omnipotent and omniscient, which is what Western theology has long maintained, and as the being who brought all things into existence. That kind of God is no longer, it seems to me, viable with a Darwinian perspective. Thus, many liberal theologians now conceive of God as a power and force within the natural universe rather than outside it. And such a naturalistic theism, as it's called, has different expressions, but it usually affirms that God is not all-powerful uh, and all-knowing. All to some of these thinkers, God is a force sort of like a magnet that draws us toward goodness and wholesomeness and decency and health. Uh, personally, I'm a, not a theist in any sense, but uh, I, I put that paragraph in there because I, I want, want it be, to be clear that it is still possible to have some conception of God within a naturalistic framework uh, within a Darwinian perspective. Darwin's idea of natural selection added considerably to the already mounting doubts about the existence of God, doubts born of the renew, removal of the earth from the center of the solar system by Copernicus, re reinforced by geology's discovery that the earth was at least millions of years old, and eroded further by the 19th century biblical scholarship 
and by the Enlightenment's insistence on reason and empirical evidence as the way to truth. All of these reasons why people rejected the belief in God, and then, of course, along comes Darwin and put the final nail in the coffin of belief. Uh, before Darwin, most scientists believed that, that science pointed to God as the first cause, the creator of the laws of nature, and the being who designed the world and its many complex inhabitants. Although not a scientist, William Paley, in his book entitled Natural Theology, published in 1802, set forth what many scientists more or less thought. Paley argued that design in the world required the existence of a designer. Sound familiar? Just as a complicated mechanism like a watch required a watchmaker, Paley argued that the universe with its incredible diversity and complicated organisms must also have a designer. The argument from design was thought for many years to be the strongest argument for the existence of a supernatural deity. And of course today, the advocates of intelligent design, so-called, still hold to that belief. But by showing how the complexity of living things could arise from the process of natural selection, Darwin removed the need for a designer and undercut natural theology and the argument from design for the existence of God. Historian James Turner writes, the Darwinian hypothesis of natural selection explained two of the three great instances of divine activity in biology. First, the origin of species, and second, the adaptation of plants and animals to their environment. Explain these things without reference to God. Moreover, it was difficult to reconcile the idea of a loving, benevolent, and all-powerful deity with the theory of natural selection, which included competition for survival and suffering and killing and even extinction. Nature read in truth, tooth and claw, as we recall from reading our textbooks years ago. If God is good, as he is supposed to be, then why would he choose such a cruel process for his creation? So that would undermine the idea of a, of a God who can uh, create the world through the use of natural selection. At the very least, the theory of natural selection moved God from the center of human life and thinking to the fringes. God was no longer seen as necessary to the creation of plants, animals, and human beings. These could be accounted for by natural selection. Darwin's idea was not the sole cause, as I said earlier, of skepticism, but it made a significant and in some cases a decisive commitment, uh, contribution to that skepticism. For me and many others, it was the last nail in the coffin of a supernatural deity. The third area I want to discuss uh, is, uh, has to do with where evolution has impacted religion in the, spirit of, uh, in, in, the, in the area of spirituality. For the Darwinian, spirituality does not refer to anything supernatural, obviously. If it has any meaning, and I think it can and should, it is a naturalistic spirituality. As noted earlier, the theory of evolution by natural selection united human beings with other living things. Biologist George Wald writes that despite the great variety of life forms which have evolved over the millennia, their basic biological entities differ very little. Biologists have become acutely aware of the kinship of all living organisms. The result is a sense of the unity of all things, the idea that we are all related. On the one hand, this suggests that all human beings are brothers and sisters, members of one family, 
and therefore that we have far more in common than otherwise. That's, and that, obviously that has a lot of implications worldwide for ethics and behavior. The spiritual and ethical implication of this realization is that we should live together in love and caring, that we should be tolerant of our differences, and that we should be responsible to and for one another. If we are all part of one big family, then why do we have to have so many family feuds? But we are also related to all other forms of life. Darwinian thinking suggests that we are one with all of nature and therefore that we have a moral responsibility to care for and preserve the world. Darwin's idea provides a deep spiritual grounding for a strong environmental ethic as well as for a nature spirituality. Albert Einstein suggested that the religion of the future should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things as a meaningful unity. And the seventh principle of the Unitarian Universalist Association affirms the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part, and therefore recognizes this same insight of the unity of all, all things, all living organisms. This sense of unity, of our deep and abiding connection with all of life is surely a spiritual experience. Sort of my experience with the tree that I told you about earlier. Darwin's idea also fostered a deeper nature spirituality. One of the effects of Darwin's the uh, theory was to take the focus away from the supernatural and put it on the natural, on nature. And nature's amazing fecundity and diversity and the remarkable process that Darwin called evolution by natural selection. In a post-Darwinian world, the natural world evokes emotions such as awe and wonder and reverence and mystery, often identified as religious emotions. Sort of thing I spoke about a year and a half ago with you and that I wrote about in a book that some of you purchased. The result is a spirituality grounded in feelings of awe and reverence evoked by nature. Physicist Chet Ramo writes, Darwin counted himself an agnostic, but in his reverence for the creative agency of nature, we should count him a devoutly religious man. I love that. When William James wrote in the Varieties of Religious Experience of a new sort of religion based on nature, which has entirely displaced Christianity, this is uh, 107 years ago or so that he wrote this, he was referring to a veneration of evolution. Science in general and evolution in particular evoked this discovery of spiritual meaning in the natural world. Herbert Spencer, a disciple of Darwin, even suggested that human beings should, and I quote, fall on our knees before nature. Not sure that I want to go that far, but that reminded me of, remember Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov has, who is it, Alyosha, the very Christian character in the book, fall on the, on the earth and, and kiss and hug the earth. The late Carl Sagan, a humanist, as you know, I'm sure, put it beautifully. He said, when we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. Now, of course, this is to take the word spiritual away from the supernaturalists and the theists and say that it can be used by all the rest of us as well and should be used. And one of my favorite books that I've read recently is called, it's by a philosopher named Robert Solomon, it's called Spirituality for Skeptics. 
<clears throat> and there's another one which I, I love too. It's by the French philosopher André Consponville, which is called uh, The Little Book of Atheist Spirituality. <laughs> it's a good book. I recommend it. I recommend the other one too, even more. Adoration of nature, of course, was not new to the Western world. The psalmist had proclaimed the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose first published work was his great essay on nature, found spiritual depth in communion with the natural world. Although it was not new to find spiritual, nature in, uh, spiritual nurture in nature, Darwin's discovery increased both interest in the natural world and the sense of awe and wonder it evoked. Many felt nature's beauty to be a source of moral vigor and spiritual refreshment. Reflecting on the long and arduous evolutionary journey of plants and animals and birds and fish and human beings has increased our sense of awe and wonder and reverence in the, uh, in the face of nature. Carl Sagan recognized <clears throat> the spiritual value of nature, uh, to quote him again, when he wrote, a religion that has stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. To which I say, amen. <laughs> Darwin's idea did not create a nature spirituality, of course, but it increased its importance and added deeper meaning to it. The last point I want to make and I have about five more minutes, I think, so I'm going to use them, uh, is uh, that the, this, the, it has to do with the controversy over the teaching of evolution in the public schools. A strategy document of, uh, intelligent design, uh, you know, uh, of intelligent design advocates called The Wedge, and some of you may have seen the article about it in the, in the Washington Post, I don't know, six months ago or so, suggests that proponents of intelligent design are not as concerned about the truth of evolution as they are about the underlying values they think it teaches concluding that teaching evolution leads to moral relativism. As one contemporary supporter of intelligent design put it, Darwinian evolution tells us not only where we came from, but also what behavior is natural and normative for human beings. Teach kids they are animals, and they'll act like animals. Well, some of us might think that would be an improvement, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Such a view, of course, represents a misunderstanding of evolution. The criticisms of the opponents of teaching evolution in the schools can be met by having teachers explain that morality does not logically flow from evolutionary theory. Teachers can explain that because mutations in organisms are random does not mean that human morality is random, and so on. There are lots of ways to get around that. While it is true that evolutionary theory does not imply certain moral principles, in recent years, evolutionary psychologists and anthropologists have shown that human ethical values have a basis in pre-moral uh, feelings and behaviors of our evolutionary ancestors and in the social relations of early humans. Evolutionary psychology and cognitive neuroscience are also showing how our moral intuitions work, why they evolved, and how they are implemented within the brain. In other words, uh, Again, uh, to go back to my book and what I said a year and a half ago, uh, you can be good without God. And in fact, ethics and morality um, arose out of non-theistic cultures uh, just as much uh, as, as, and even earlier than out of theistic cultures. Apes and monkeys and dolphins and whales exhibit behaviors that include cooperation and mutual aid and altruism and sympathy and peacemaking and community concern. These premoral feelings and behaviors became part of the genetic heritage 
of human beings. E.O. Wilson, the great Harvard biologist, believes that cooperativeness and empathy may be heritable, inherited that is, because cooperative individuals generally survive longer and leave more offspring, meaning that genes predisposing people toward cooperative behavior would have come to predominate in the human population as a whole. Um, I hope that's the case. We don't have a whole lot of evidence for that, unfortunately. As human beings lived in groups, families and clans and tribes, and ultimately cities and states, it would have become clear, for example, that such actions, actions as murder and theft endangered self-preservation, and therefore prohibitions against such actions would arise. In addition, these prohibitions, along with the inherited traits of cooperation, would have evolved to become more inclusive. In a word, to quote another source, uh, norms of good and evil, of right and wrong, did not spring full-blown from somebody's head. They developed slowly over generations of trial and error. It is the mark of being human that we benefit from the experience of others. To recognize that concepts of good and evil are derived from human experience is to give them a timeless validity. The realization that morals are empirically grounded does not invalidate traditional norms, it greatly reinforces them. So the point of all this, of course, is simply that uh, evolutionary theory, Darwinian theory, does not compete with our, or conflict with, with our moral uh, theories and ethical um, beliefs and practices as they have arisen over time. They too have evolved. Uh, if you don't um, believe it, just, uh, well, even look, look at a lot of the literature, but uh, even the Bible, for example. Um, in the Old Testament, people did things which uh, we would consider to be uh, immoral these days. So there is an evolution in morality, as you well know. Darwin himself saw that moral principles were expanded and modified through thousands of generations, and he put it this way, any animal, whatever, endowed with well-marked social instincts, the parental and filial affections being here included, would inevitably acquire a moral sense or conscience as soon as its intellectual powers had become as well or nearly as well developed as in man. So, although Darwinian theory does not suggest moral principles itself, either implicitly or explicitly, it does help us understand their origins. This understanding, in turn, helps to sever the supposed link between ethics and belief in God, as I have said. Okay, in conclusion, it is not too much to say, as British biologist uh, Olivia Judson writes, that the origin of species changed everything. Darwin's theory revolutionized our understanding of ourselves, our sense of God and spirituality, our relationship to the natural world, and the origin and nature of morality. Far from resulting in a pessimistic or even nihilistic view of life, Darwin's brilliant theory leads to an understanding of what it means to be human that is both scientifically grounded and spiritually satisfying, as he himself wrote at the very end of The Origin. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that while this planet has gone cycling or on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being created.
to me, the understanding of evolution by natural selection has reinforced my religious understanding, spiritual understanding of life and of the world. And I agree with Darwin that there is grandeur in this view of life. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>